According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me as we get started this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 21. Deuteronomy 21. This is day 79 in the Through the Bible calendar. So we're going to cover from 21. We, we got a, the first nine verses we covered in our last session together. So we'll start with 21.10, go through the rest of chapter 21, 22, 23, 24, and, uh, and 25. So uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover, almost five full chapters, Lord willing and rapture pending. That's, uh, that's the agenda for today. I did want to also bring up the reading plan, the overall reading plan, because remember it was just a week ago that we started Deuteronomy. Uh, last Sunday, in the four sessions that we record each Sunday, last Sunday we had at the 9.30 hour the conclusion to the book of Numbers, where we covered uh, Numbers 34 through 36, and then we had the next three sessions on Sunday, all dealing with Deuteronomy, as well as Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. So we've had a total of six sessions in Deuteronomy already. Uh, we'll have four more today, and then um, Tuesday night, when we come back Tuesday night, will be the conclusion to Deuteronomy, so we'll be wrapping that up uh, with uh, day 83. Then on Wednesday night, we'll have an introductory class to take us across to the next era. Remember, there are these era divisions within the Bible that introduce the next section. So era three is possessing the promised land, and really that serves as the introduction for Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and about eight chapters or so of First uh, of Samuel. So everything from uh, the conquest to uh, the calling of the first king, to the selection of Saul to be the, uh, the first king of Israel. So anyway, that kind of gives you the, the big picture of what we're covering and where we are and where we're going. Before we do get started this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer to call upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for this day and the blessings You have supplied and provided abundantly, Father. We uh, do ask for some of the technical issues that uh, have evidently at this point now been resolved. We pray that You keep them resolved so that we can continue the stream and continue what we're doing. Father, it's in your hands. We just thank you and praise you for blessing uh, this entire series, 11 completed weeks, and now this morning we start week number 12. Thank you, Father, for, uh, for this, uh, this journey together. We give you the praise and the glory now in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 10. Let's just pick up, let's look at verses 10 through 14 for our first point from the outline. Moses gives instructions for how captive women were to be treated. They are provided for as grieving orphans, though not as widows, and then they are properly married. And I think that's a distinction, so let's look at it. When you go out to battle against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take, away, you take them away captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and have a desire for her and would take her as a wife for yourself. Then you shall bring her home to your house and you shall shave her head and trim her nails. She shall also remove the clothes of her captivity and, you sh and shall remain in your house and mourn for her father and mother a full month. And after that, you may go into her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. And it shall be if you are not pleased with her, then you shall, go, uh, you shall let her go wherever she wishes, but you shall certainly not sell her for money. You shall not mistreat her because you have humbled her. All right, so that's verses 10 through 14. And this, this seems so alien to us, 21st century American Christians, who we typically don't raid foreign lands and conquer territory and take women captive, okay? That's not our, uh, that's not our culture. But then again, look what's happening in Ukraine right now when a foreign enemy invades and the, uh, the realities of war are the realities of war with loss of life, property destruction, horrible things happening to the, uh, to the men, women, and children in such conditions. And so this is a remarkable grace provision, and this is uh, a, the uh, under God's grace, under God's mercy, this is the provision for the Jewish people to be reflections of His mercy towards these captives that they're taking. You'll notice the grieving specifically is for father and mother. 
The grieving is not for a husband, as the case may be, because uh, that's not uh, one of the surviving categories that's going to be allowed. Generally speaking, the men are going to be put to death. The uh, Their wives are going to be put to death. The only captives that you're taking are the younger girls, the virgins, the unmarried, and uh, those are the ones that will become available for the plunder, for the for the booty, as it were, and for not for what the, the the carnal world does. The carnal world would would take them and and do horrible things and and that. I don't even want to talk about that. But that's what the pagan world does to women and children that are captured in combat. But in God's provision, this is an opportunity for evangelism. This is an opportunity for grace. These are young girls that have never been married to anybody. And if this provision was not in place, think about what their life would be like afterwards if the Jewish men did not take them, did not marry them, did not bring them up in the in the things of the of the Lord. So I think we have a, a grace provision there as well. And uh, other examples of that, of course, include we're going to get into the book of Ruth, whereby Ruth is a Moabitess. And what is the opportunity for a pagan woman, if she does marry into Israel, to become saved, to become a part of the covenant nation, to be uh, to be taught the things of the Lord and to have a life that glorifies God instead of the, the Moabite life or the Canaanite life or whatever her life would have been like prior to this this warfare. This warfare is actually the best thing that could have ever happened to her in having her people removed and having her brought into the Jewish nation. So we have those issues there. If any questions on that, we, we do have a question and answer night coming up on Wednesday and we can explore that a little bit more. All right, verses 15 through 17. Additional instructions. Uh, in this time, it's for the polygamous marriages, which exalts div- the divine principles of firstborn higher than any human considerations as to favoritism among wives. Remember, the doctrine that's taught is the firstborn. The context is polygamy. So let's uh, not confuse the context with a doctrine. So if a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, or literally, hated, idiomatic use of hate there, Uh, both the loved and the unloved have borne him sons. If the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then it shall be in the day that he wills what he has to his sons. He cannot make the son of the loved the firstborn before the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength. That's an idiom that we have in several passages through the Old Testament as it, refer, as it refers to the male's role in procreating the, uh, the next generation. He is the beginning of his strength. To him belongs the right of the firstborn. And so we see that the issue is the doctrine of the firstborn. And that's a doctrine that has a precedent. It has a priority over other particular doctrines. And, and don't get me wrong, when you're talking about marriage, there are a lot of doctrines that apply. Uh, when you have two sin natures that, and the two become one flesh, you'll notice they still have two sin natures. <laughs> and, and so you have the issue of marriage that every marriage deals with. But in this case, the, the doctrine that's being highlighted is the doctrine of the firstborn, that you can't be playing favorites with the son that is the literal firstborn son. He has the right in the plan of God for that double portion inheritance. And if you happen to be playing favorites among your wives, shouldn't be doing that anyway, but if you are, you're not going to overcome the uh, the doctrine of the firstborn that God says has the preeminence. And remember, this is our, our privilege. This is what we do in bearing the image of God, that we, ha- we have the privilege to be able to be begetters and begotten ones. We get to portray God the Father and God the Son, the begetter and the begotten one. And then the real portrayal that we get to do there in that, angels don't get to do that. Angels, there are no girl angels. The, the angels aren't marrying and giving in marriage. The angels aren't having baby angels, okay? It's humanity in the image of God that gets to portray the begetter and the begotten one in imaging God the Father and God the Son with every generation. So keep those things in mind as well. All right, get to verses 18 through 21. Moses gives instructions for how to deal with rebellious, uncontrollable youth. You know, they didn't have the gangbanger issues that, uh, that we have today. And, uh, and these other issues with out-of-control youth become out-of-control adults, which becomes a breakdown in society, and it's devastating to a culture. 
If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them. So this is out of control. And it didn't just start today. This has been going on for some time. And uh, this open defiance has been tolerated, and whatever they've tried to do to, to stop it isn't working. Then his father and his mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. And they shall say to the elders of his city, and remember the elders, who are they? They're family, they're extended family. All of these cities are are, uh, settled on the basis of tribes and clans and families and heads of household. And so when you're bringing to the city gate, you're bringing to your extended family, your clan, your tribe for this kind of judgment. And they shall say to the elders of his city, the son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Which brings me to the question of how old is this kid? Okay, he's not a toddler. He's not a grade school age. But he is a son. Is he an adult son? Is he on the verge of becoming an adult son? In which case, why is he a drunkard? How much drinking has he been doing in his youth? Is he an adult son? Is he a son that has not yet been married because the parents are still beside themselves? They, they don't want to contract a marriage with anybody, with a, the son. This son's not ready for marriage. This son's barely, you know, this son's not even ready for adulthood, even if he is in adulthood. So, all the men of the city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it and fear. And again, with our modern sensitivities, this is a verse that causes a lot of trouble. And people can't imagine putting their own offspring, putting their own child to death. And this is where, if in fact this is unthinkable, if in fact this is unimaginable, you can't even imagine a scenario where you would want to to bring your child to physical death, um, I would then rephrase the question and ask yourself, can you imagine a scenario where you will exalt your parental love over your love for Jesus Christ and your duty to obey the scriptures. Is that a fair way to state that? Is that, do you compromise the word of God because you have tender affections for your offspring? Because believe me, I've seen this dozens of times. I have seen this probably hundreds of times going back over 30 years. The idea that they, uh, the parents know what the Bible says, they know what's right and wrong, they know uh, issues like homosexuality or um, shacking up without marriage or just other things that the kids are doing and they know it's wrong but they compromise the truth because they love their children. And I get that. I get how hard that is. But the truth is the truth. And so I think the willingness to, uh, to put this rebel to death. Now, so I guess rephrasing the question again, if this rebel if this idolatrous, out-of-control rebel was not your son, would you support putting him to death? Okay? And if there's a distinction to be found between your son and a stranger, then that's not a doctrinal issue we're debating at all in the first place. It's just a subjectivity problem that we're having because of the, the, the person involved is related to us. If that's fair. All right, again, Wednesday night for questions. <laughs> but notice, it's not only this text. We have other passages like uh, Exodus chapter 20. Honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. That's the first commandment with a promise. The, the, the antithesis of this, though, if you curse your father and mother, that's worthy of death. De- uh, Deuteronomy 27 and verse 26. Cursed is he who dishonors his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. We're going to get to that where we have the national recitation of cursings and blessings. Six tribes on each side. Exodus 21, 17, he who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. Put him to death. And, and the parents really ought to be on board with this. Part of the, the duty that they have in training up the next generation. It's their failure as much as anything. Leviticus 20 and verse 9. If there's anyone who curses his father or mother, he shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood guiltiness is upon him. Okay, And I didn't put it in here. I thought about, you know, we have other passages. I think it's in Second Kings with Elijah and the, these 42 youth are calling him baldy, baldy and mocking him. And, uh, and, and then God sends the two she-bears out there to take care of that. All right, They didn't have the hoodlums. They didn't have the, the gangbanger issues that we have. And all of this is just long-term 
consequences of long-term permissiveness, winking at sin and allowing for the uncontrolled uh, toddlers to become uncontrolled young people, to become uncontrolled young adults. And uh, each step of the way was a failure to, uh, to remedy that through God's discipline system. All right. Finally then, the last two verses of chapter 21, Moses gives instructions for the most shameful and accursed manner of capital punishment, the public display of the executed one. You know, there are many times, of course, where somebody is to be put to death. It's the standard judgment for violating law. Uh, in fact, it's, mo- it's so common, actually, putting the person to death is so common, it's actually unusual to find something other than that. Something in terms of a monetary fine or restitution or um, marriage, for example, is, is the penalty for premarital sex. There, there are a handful of exceptions whereby the judgment uh, is not death. But even in the many, many cases where judgment is death, it's not necessarily uh, prescribed that the corpse be put on display. That that evidently is reserved for only the most heinous of examples. That the public display needs to be extended throughout the entire, in, in a very visible way for the entirety of that day. And you'll notice too, um, we talked about deterrence. It's come up uh, before today. It's come up a couple of times in this, um, in this chapter like in verse 21, you shall remove the evil from your midst and all Israel will hear of it and fear. The deterrence value for proper execution of judgment is not only does it deal with the immediate issue that has to be dealt with, not only does it remove the stain of that one sinner's sin, but also it serves as a deterrence to scare other people, to, to influence other people to say, I don't want to be doing that. You know, there's other teenagers, other young people that better check themselves and make sure they're honoring their father and mother because of what happened to their uh, to their homie. All right, the deterrence factor, and the the death itself, capital punishment is a deterrence factor. But then, just executing him is the deterrence. But then, to put the corpse up on display, to nail it to a tree or to hang it in, in, in public view, is is even more so. And this describes the cursed nature of it. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree. So, you know, even beyond killing him, you're displaying his corpse. His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God so that you do not defile your land in which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. And remember, when capital punishment is applied correctly, Following the biblical mandates, when it's done at the hands of, of the state, not the hands of a man, but at the hands of the government, and it's done with the, the judicial boundaries in place, so we have the multiple witnesses, everything is determined to be true and factual, then it is the image of God defending the image of God and upholding God's glory in the act of executing the murderer. It is not uh, the innocent, the shedding of innocent blood that would defile a land. It actually purifies the defiled land from the previous defiling of blood. Does that make sense? Because the murder itself, the original murder, was innocent blood that defiled the land. And so the land has to be expiated. The land has to be, has to be healed, has to be cleansed. And that's done through the proper judicial uh, exercise of capital punishment. All right, but then hanging the curse overnight, hanging the uh, the body overnight. No, you can hang it for that day only, for that day only, and before the sun goes down, that body has to come off the tree. Similar, of course, with when our Savior was crucified, that uh, they wanted to get him off the cross before the sun went down. So Joseph of Arimathea came and offered to take the body down and to prepare it for burial and to have it in the ground before uh, before nightfall. The preview of the shame of Christ. And you can read through that. That's John, uh, John chapter 19, uh, verses 31 through 38. And you have uh, those issues there. I think we're familiar with those. And then, of course, the, the doctrine of the curse is what Paul was addressing in Galatians chapter 3. Not only did Christ redeem us from our sins, Christ redeemed us from the curse redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 
And this is another doctrine of redemption that I think gets overlooked so much. I, I mentioned that when we taught this in Galatians. We tend to get so focused on our sins and being redeemed from our sins. We're happy for that. Uh, but there's more that we're redeemed from than just our sins. And in this text, the uh, highlight is the curse of the law. So he became a curse to, uh, to accomplish that work. All right, that gets us through chapter 21, and we're ready now for chapters 22 and following. Moses launches into a series of instructions on many different topics throughout the remainder of his third farewell discourse. Remember, this is the longest of the five farewell discourses. This one actually began all the way back in chapter 12, and Moses has just been talking and talking and talking and talking like, you know, the Energizer Bunny or something. He just keeps going and going and going and going. And, uh, and it continues. Now when we reach this point, this is towards the end, this is towards the point of his conclusion in chapter 26, in these chapters now he just starts hopping from one topic to the next to the next to the next and, uh, and hammering it hard. So in the first eight verses he's uh, discussing, providing instructions for the establishment of a stable society. And if some of this seems redundant, I think the, the difference is this time through he's actually highlighting the fact that there is damage that's done to the society through uh, these particular sins. And see if you see the corporate applications here more than the individual applications. So let's look at verses 1 through 8. You shall not see your countryman's ox, and the word countryman is the word for brother, the word for neighbor, the word for friend. Um, It's uh, the footnote there, brother, and it's throughout the whole uh, of this uh, section. Yeah, the Hebrew ach. That speaks of your brother, your, uh, your neighbor, your countryman. All right, you shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep straying away and pay no attention to them. You shall certainly bring them back to your countrymen. See, this would reflect a sin of omission if you were to do it. This would reflect a, a thing. You spot the ox as wandering loose. You know it's whose it is. You know where it needs to be. But then you decide that, well, you know, I hate this guy anyway. <laughs> Too bad for him. I'll just act like I didn't see it. All right? And the human tendency to act like I didn't see it is a sin on your part because you did see it and uh, you are the one that has the opportunity to, uh, to corral that animal and return him, uh, bring him back to your countrymen. If your countryman is not near you or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it home to your house and it shall remain with you until your countryman looks for it. Then you shall restore it to him. So this is, you don't even know whose it is. But clearly it's loose, it belongs to somebody, there's going to be somebody that's going to want it back. So you are the one now that has the opportunity because you found him. You know, take him to your place. Feed him, take care of him. Whatever else needs to be done until a claimant comes forward. Thus you shall do with his donkey, you shall do the same with his garment. You shall do likewise with anything lost by your countrymen, which he has lost and you have found. You are not allowed to neglect them. You shall not see your countryman's donkey or his ox fallen down on the way and pay no attention to them. You shall certainly help him to raise them up. And so we have the issue there. Helpful neighbors contribute towards a stable society. Okay, And this is put into the law, so much so that it's prohibited to act otherwise. It's prohibited to act non-neighborly. And uh, to uh, just through negligence, just through um, you know the the claim of well I didn't see it, uh, you can claim that, but God knows better. And because you did see it, God expects you to be neighborly towards your neighbors. The whole love your neighbor thing that that we're uh, told about. Also, the gender roles, appropriate gender roles, contribute towards a stable society. A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on woman's clothing, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Okay, and this this hits home in our generation. I mean, we look around and we see a culture now so totally adrift, they don't even know the difference between men and women and boys and girls, and you can switch if you feel like it, and there may be even a third and a fourth and 75 other genders out there beyond anything that we grew up with, and it seems like they're inventing more and more every day. But the confusion over clothing, notice, clothing is described as either man's clothing or woman's clothing. Why would that be? Why would there be a 
a, um, we talk about cisnormative. That's, that's the phrase, you know, they invented this word called cisnormative so they could attack it as being wrong. Um, I'm just going to use it because it's appropriate. There are two options. It's either or, okay? That is cisnormative. Clothing is either man's clothing or woman's clothing by design. And, uh, and so wear what is appropriate. It contributes to a stable society. Likewise, animal stewardship contributes towards a stable society. If you happen upon a, a bird's nest along the way in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs, the mother sitting on the young or the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall certainly let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself in order that it may be well with you that you may prolong your days. Even in the realm of animal husbandry, even in the realm of, of nurturing care for animals, even wild animals, these aren't pets, these aren't work animals, this is not anything on your farm, but you're still going to have a function in humanity to care for uh, you know, and to preserve the mother alive so she can have more young. All right, You don't want to kill the mother and the young together. Verse 8, appropriate building safety codes. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof so that you will not bring blood guilt on your house if anyone falls from it. And a lot of times the roofs in the ancient world, they were, especially in, in Israel, the uh, roofs were places of storage. We're going to see that for the spies that are hiding in the, in the, uh, the, the roof there of the whorehouse in, in Jericho. The, the roof has uh, places for the storage of household goods. And if something was to fall off and crush somebody or injure somebody, then that's on you. You, uh, you were responsible for building the house the way that you built it, the way you designed it, the safety uh, features that you put in there. And so anything that falls from the house, why did you not have the, uh, the parapet? Why did you not have the edge of your roof to keep the stuff from being blown off in the wind or falling off or getting knocked off accidentally or whatever else? the case may be. Why, why didn't you have a, a fence so that your dog didn't go and, and maul the neighbor or, or other things that happen? You are responsible for your property. And that's neighborliness. That's a blessing to the community. That provides stability in the community. Okay? And I've been all over the world in different places that have no building codes. And every time I grumble about too much government, uh, then going to the third world and seeing a place that has no building codes where one windstorm or one mudslide or one whatever can just wipe out an entire village and then the next thing you know there's 50,000 displaced people or killed or whatever. Then you start to think, okay, thank you Lord for the building codes. There is reasonable uh, construction standards. There's reasonable, I mean, you want want, uh, the appropriate building material for for safety and things like that. Uh, You just don't want 50,000 people living in cardboard boxes under a bridge when that river swells. And... uh, the issues there. All right, verses 9 through 11. What God has separated, let no man put together. <laughs> okay, I just kind of twisted the, the marriage, the wedding ceremony. Jesus, of course, says what, one, what God has put together, let no man separate. We quote that a lot. That's, uh, you know, that's part of the don't uh, divorce commandments of Scripture. But this goes the other direction. Since God separated them, i.e. men and women, don't be wearing girls' clothing. Uh, since God separated them, keep them separate. Okay, And this actually is a feature in a lot of different applications with respect to food, with respect to animals, with respect to clothing, with respect to anything. The rule of thumb is, if God separated them, keep them separate. So you shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed. So, all right. Have, have one field here and have a different field there of different kinds. Don't be mixing and matching. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, and all the produce of the seed which you have sown and the increase of the vineyard will become defiled. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Why not? Don't they get along? What's wrong with that? An ox is an ox, a donkey is a donkey. Keep them separate. God kept them separate. And the point of keeping them separate, not so that you get confused, but it starts in some of the weirdest places. Keep everything separate. You won't have a problem with other issues. So don't plow with an ox and a donkey together. Two ox, two donkey, great. Oxen. Two donkeys, great. You shall not wear a material mixed of wool and linen together. 
We've got a lot of blended fabrics these days in our modern world. Of course, we're not under the law and we're not mosaic and I eat bacon too, so I'm fine with that. The, we don't have to follow these laws in our culture, but they did, and that's the point. That God was reminding them that they were different than the pagans. They were, they had a, a special role and they had the, the blessings to teach that doctrine to others. And if, um, you know, if an Egyptian said, hey, what's wrong with bacon? I love bacon. Then the, the Jew would have the opportunity to teach. I'm sure it tastes great, but we are a separate people and God has forbidden and, and made the, the pig to be unclean. So in honor to our God, we don't eat the, uh, the tasty bacon that you eat. Okay. And the issues there. So keep things separated. If they're separated, keep them separated. All right, so that's verse 11. What God has separated, let no man put together. This is the antithesis of his action in marriage. That's Matthew 19, 6. What God has joined together, let no man separate. All right, verse 12. Moses reminds Israel about the memory tassels. We had that before. We looked at that in Numbers chapter 15. Uh, you shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of your garment which, uh, with which you cover yourself. And it's curious, uh, once you learn about these tassels, then you start spotting them in different movies. You start spotting them like Fiddler on the Roof or other movies that have Jewish people in there. And then you oh, that's what that is. I get that now. And uh, the issue's there. All right, verses uh, 13 through 30. The final section of this chapter reviews the Lord's standards for sexual purity. You know, we've had this, how many times have we had this before? We've had it in Exodus, we've had it in Leviticus. Oh, we had a lot in Leviticus. Um, now we're getting it again. You've got to review it again and again, and especially if there's a new generation coming up, they've got to have the same standards reinforced. This is, uh, this is uh, a blessing not only for all of humanity for all time, but it also is um, a remarkable opportunity that families can have, okay? That, that grandparents and parents can have with with their children, with the young people, when they're on the verge of marriage, when they're on the verge of, of, uh, of becoming parents themselves, okay? When they're on the verge of engaging in the procreation activity, they need to be grounded in the doctrine for what does God expect with this procreation activity. And so we review it from generation to generation, okay? <laughs> Although sometimes I joke, I don't think that... My mom didn't know anything about sex. That, that was something she just knew nothing about. And uh, anyway, I'm glad she's in heaven. Uh, we've got some of these passages coming up that are easier to teach without her sitting right here in the room. So, the public shame for premarital sex in verses 13 through 21. Okay? Then the scourge of adultery in verses 22 through 24. Then the evil of rape in verses 25 through 29. And this is probably one of the toughest chapters to deal with for a lot of different reasons in uh, these different contexts. All right. Um, If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then turns against her and charges her with shameful deeds and publicly defames her and says, I took this woman, but when I came near her, I did not find her a virgin. And so this is a scandal. It's a terrible scandal in the, in the family, in the clan, in the tribe, because the contracts were arranged on the basis of, of her being a virgin, that the purity for the tribe's inheritance is, is guaranteed by her uh, being a virgin. He knows that any child that's produced of this marriage is his. And he, he uh, shames her in this way, publicly shaming her in this way. When we get to the New Testament, Joseph did not want to shame Mary in this way. When he found out that Mary was pregnant, he actually could have employed these procedures, but he wanted to extend to her a grace and a, and a, and a mercy that the Mosaic law would not have extended to her. So he did not shame her publicly. But this is the procedure here. So he says, I took the woman, but when I came near to her, I did not find her a virgin. Then the girl's father and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of the girl's virginity to the elders at the gate uh, at the city at the gate. So it's a matter of public record. This is on display at the gates of the city where business is transacted, where legal proceedings, where court proceedings take place. All the conduct of business takes place in the city gates. And so this, uh, this then is the evidence. And, it, and if this seems odd to us, um, if this seems, I think we've lost a lot of what is the cultural 
uh, aspects of marriage from the ancient world when it does unite families and clans and tribes together, when the issue of her virginity and his virginity too, by the way, the issue of both of them being pure entering into their marriage is a matter for the clans themselves to guarantee. Because if it's true, if she played the harlot in her father's house, that is an attack upon the father's authority. That's an attack on, on the, the patriarchy as they rage against it today. But as God provided for it, remember her father is her protection until her husband becomes her protection. If she has a foolish vow, her father can rescue her from that foolish vow. Or her husband can rescue her from that foolish vow. The father and the husband have protective value. And then for her to defy that protective value and then, you know, run around and and, and, and do what she's doing in her father's house, that's playing the harlot. And that's the penalty for that is death. For defying your father's um, um, your father's role in your life. All right. So um, the girl's father shall say to the elders, "I gave my daughter to this man for a wife, but he turned against her. Behold, he has charged her with shameful deeds, saying, I did not find your daughter a virgin. But this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the garment before the elders of the city. It's just laid on out there on display." Okay? And you wonder, why do people keep these things? Because they do. They keep them. They've been keeping them. Their parents kept them. Their parents before them kept them. The parents before them kept them. And on the wedding night, this, uh, this garment that was stained, this garment that was blood stained in, in, in the, the loss of her virginity, that becomes an heirloom. That becomes uh, that's stored away. Okay? You know, it's like, why did Monica Lewinsky keep the blue dress? You think, well, if she hadn't, we wouldn't have had the evidence that was on that blue dress. It's remarkable. All right. But if it's actually not true, she was a virgin. So um, the elders of the city shall take the man and chastise him. Because it's slander, it's uh, perjury, he's lying in a court, he's defaming this virgin of Israel, and uh, he's going to have a penalty, a hundred shekels of silver. That's a significant chunk of your annual income. And uh, give it to the girl's father because he publicly defamed a virgin of Israel. Notice it goes to the father. He's the guarantor of her purity and shall remain his wife. He cannot divorce her all his days. So this is a, a, a lifelong, this is like the, the, when you're caught with the premarital sex, it was marriage without parole, or marriage without divorce. In the uh, Same thing here. Same thing here. Okay? I mess that up every time. But if the charge is true, that the girl was not found a virgin, then they shall bring out the girl to the doorway of her father's house, and the men of the city shall stone her to death, so this is the uh, the widower now that was a newlywed this morning. Now he's a widower this evening. Stone her to death because she has committed an act of folly in Israel by playing the harlot in her father's house. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. Now, all non-marital sex is harlotry. Whether you get paid for it or not, whether you're paying for it or not, the, the financial transaction is irrelevant. The harlotry is the non-marital fornication. That's the harlotry. And to do so in her father's house, that is while still you know, uh, under his sovereign uh, headship. That's verses uh, 13 through 21. All right, and then we have adultery. Verses 22 through 24. So non-marital is harlotry. Marital fornication is adultery. If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with a woman and the woman. Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a, and so adultery is punishable by death. If there is any girl who is a virgin engaged to a man, that's counted as married. Violate her and that's adultery. Engaged to a man, like Mary and Joseph were still in the engagement period, they were considered legally married. And another man finds her in the city and lies with her. You shall bring both out to the gate of that city. You shall stone them to death. The girl, because she did not cry out in the city, and so she can't even allege rape. There were witnesses there. She could have called for help. And the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife. Thus you shall purge the evil 
from among you. And you notice, are we talking about sins? The man and the woman, they committed personal sins. The man and the woman, you know, now they are they, you know, they're, they're out of fellowship. And stop thinking that. This is a text. We're not talking about the personal sins and consequences. We're talking about society's consequences. We're talking about the impact on the culture, the defilement to the land. And so when it says, um, you shall purge the evil from among you. Adultery stains the land. It's, it's an act of evil that pollutes the land. And we've had those teachings before. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, thou shalt not commit adultery. Leviticus 20 and verse 10, uh, adultery. The adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Then the issue of rape. We've already had a kind of a clue to this because of the phrase in verse 24, She cried out for help and there was no one to help. If they're out in the field and there's no one nearby, there's no one to rescue her, then she's innocent. She's not a guilty party. She's been raped. She's been violated. It was not her volitional activity to engage in this. All right, so verse 25, if in the field the man finds the girl who is engaged and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. Okay, because it's not her will, it's his will. It's involuntary on her part. And uh, he's the adulterer. Notice, he's not executed for being a rapist. He's executed for being an adulterer. It took me 30 years to, for that light bulb to dawn. Okay? But you shall do nothing to the girl. There is no sin in the girl worthy of death. For just as a man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is this case. Um, She's the victim. She's not the volitional participant in the activity. And so no sin worthy of death. What's worthy of death? Adultery, murder. Okay. Keep in mind, premarital fornication is not a sin worthy of death. Premarital fornication. So let's say it was not involuntary. Let's say it was voluntary. Let's say say that, that she did it and he did it and uh, and well, if she did it willingly, then she's an adulterer because she's engaged to another man. Adultery is worthy of death. Okay, um, if she's not engaged, if she's just a single woman, a virgin in her father's house, and and uh, and she consents, she wants to do this. She has a boyfriend or whatever. Anyway, premarital sex is wrong, but it's not punishable by death. Okay, so let's keep that in mind. This phrase, worthy of death, is not covering volitional uh, fornication. Because volitional fornication is not worthy of death. The penalty for volitional fornication is marriage. Okay? Marriage without, uh, with marriage with a lifelong ban on divorce. All right. When he found her in the field, the engaged girl cried out, but there was no one to save her. So she didn't want it. She cried for help. Nobody helped her. And she is innocent of a crime. She is innocent of the adultery. If a man finds a girl who is a virgin, who is not engaged, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are discovered. All right. Now this is where the language changes. And the problem is, is we're trying to read too much into it that's not there. Because remember, this is a summary. So this is a, a capstone to everything else that Moses has given, including Exodus, including Leviticus. All right, so she's not married. It's not an adultery violation. If it's not an adultery violation, why would he be put to death? It's adultery that's punishable by death. She's not engaged to be married. She's not a married woman. All right, seizes her and lies with her. Again, I think the language is ambiguous enough. It's not, it appears to be involuntary. It's left open to question whether it's voluntary or involuntary. But then the phrase, they are discovered. Well, wait a minute, how did that happen? They are discovered, not he is discovered, not she reported it and they hunted him down. They are discovered. I think that change in language makes this a different element than the other. 
So the man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father 50 shekels of silver. So this is premarital fornication is what this ends up being. And they are discovered. Not she cried for help and she was rescued. No. They are discovered. That's how it's phrased. So the man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father 50 shekels of silver. I mean, man. Again, huge dowry at this point. You know, double what it would have been otherwise. And she shall become his wife because he has violated her. He cannot divorce her all his days. Again, the penalty for premarital fornication is lifelong marriage without the possibility of a divorce. And then incest, to, to cap off the entire chapter. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he will not uncover his father's skirt. This is the, uh, the evil of rape and the evil of incest. And a lot of that incest uh, is really the content from Leviticus 18 and, and chapter 20 because it's the mother, it's the aunt, it's the sister, it's the daughter, it's the daughter-in-law. There are a lot of prohibited um, marriage relationships And because those are prohibited marriage relationships, they're prohibited sexual relationships, just by virtue of the fact that sex is to be done within the uh, context of marriage. All right. Anyway, if you need more on that, I would recommend going back and reviewing the Leviticus 18 material and uh, the MP3s, uh, YouTube videos, whatever the case may be there. But remember, at the top of those chapters, I pointed out said these are not sexual boundaries, these are marital boundaries because marriage itself is the sexual boundary in, uh, in the plan of God. All right, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 23. And again, if there's any questions on any of these things, let me know. We've got question and answer tonight, Wednesday night. But this, you know, of all the things I get when I get unbelievers attacking me because, uh, because I still teach the Bible and they view the Bible as barbaric, the Bible is a God's a moral monster, that uh, he orders genocide uh, again. He picks and chooses the, uh, you know, genocide against people he hates. And then the feminists are absolutely... Um, hair on fire out of their minds over the idea that a, um, a rape victim has to marry her rapist. Okay? And I think she, they get there because they want to read the text in the worst possible way imaginable and they, uh, don't, they have no context with respect to the realities of the ancient world. What was it like? And like the, the captive women as well. You know, what was, it was a blessing for Rahab that she was spared from the destruction of Jericho. And then she gets to live with the, the covenant nation of Israel for the rest of her life. What's the alternative to these captive women? You're just going to kill them all? Is that, is that better? Or are you going to let them roam free? Where are they going to go? You know, if they, if they leave Israel, they're going to go to a pagan nation. They're going to go to Egypt. They're going to go to Turkey. They're going to go to Babylon. Wherever they do go, what's going to happen to them there? Something horrible, Okay. Now, the best place for them is with the covenant people of God under the teaching of the Word of God and to be treated as a wife, uh, not as a um, booty plunder, um, you know, sex slave or whatever else. All right, enough of that. Chapters 23, how far are we going to get today? Wow. 23, 24, and 19 verses of 25. All right, Lord. Chapter 23, verses 1 through 8. Moses provides instructions for admission to or prohibition from the assembly of the Lord. Now this is remarkable too. No one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. There it is. Okay? And we're talking about for the solemn assembly, we're talking about Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles. We're not we're talking about the sacred assemblies when the nation is assembled together for the worship of the Lord God. This is the most sacred assembly, and they can't be offering, uh, you know, the sheep has to be without spot or blemish, the priest has to be without spot or blemish, and the participants, the participants have to be ceremonially clean, and they cannot be um, damaged goods, as it were. All right? No one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Your parents weren't married? You're a bastard? Okay? We don't use that language today. That's not considered, that's considered shaming the child. Well, there's a reason for that. 
God has designed the man and the woman in the covenant of marriage to be raising up the next generation in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. So no bastard shall enter the assembly of the Lord. And none of his descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Wow. Who's tracking that? The Jews. Okay. All their generations back. Every generation from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to their tribe, to their clan, to their family, they can track these generations. At least they could up until 70 AD when the temple was destroyed and all the records were lost. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. Because they did not meet with you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. Remember, I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. So Moabites and Ammonites are banned from the solemn assembly. They hired Balaam, son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Verse 6, 7, and 8, you shall never seek their peace or their prosperity all your days. You shall not detest uh, an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not detest an Egyptian, because you were an alien in his land. The sons of the third generation who are born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. So that's a little bit better than the tenth generation for the Moabites and the Ammonites. All right, so there's verses 1 through 8. Such banned people could not participate in the public feasts and worship of the nation of Israel. Such banned people could not serve as kings, priests, judges, etc. The illegitimate birth to Perez and Judah, I'm sorry, the illegitimate birth of Perez to Judah and Tamar disqualified any descendant to serve as king until the generation of David. And it's kind of interesting to track those down and to see when you have the line from uh, the line of Judah through Perez to get to David. The prohibition of Ammonites, Moabites, and Edomites is mitigated by the grace that allows a Moabitess to become a Hebrew. When she said, your people shall be my people, she stopped being a Moabite at that point in time. She was married to to, uh, Boaz, and there you have it. All right, verses 9 through 14. Moses provides instructions for ritual purity going into battle. You know, you think when you go to battle, you've got to have your weapons, you've got to have your ammunition, you've got to have your uniform, you've got to have your, your, uh, your food, your water. No, you've got to be ceremonially clean. When you go out as an army against your enemies, keep yourself from every evil thing. If there is among you a man who has an unclean because of a nocturnal emission, he must go outside the camp, he may not re-enter the camp. When evening approaches, he shall bathe himself with water, and at sundown he may re-enter the camp. And we talk about some of these other provisions as well. You have a spade among your tools. You got to bury, bury your poop. <laughs> All right. Since the Lord your God. Now you think about it. This is the covenant nation, and everything they do is in holiness, from their worship to their warfare to their uh, lovemaking to their raising of children to everything that they do. Is, is it falls within the parameters of God's designs for holiness, the ceremonial purity of a, of a holy nation. Even bathroom functions are stipulated here in the law. Runaway slaves in verses 15 and 16. Runaway Gentile slaves who sought refuge in Israel, not to be returned <clears throat> to their pagan slave owners, If they desire to remain among the covenant nation, they can remain in the covenant nation. They can live within the boundaries of Israel and they will not be restored to their pagan slave owners. That's verses 15 and 16. Warning is against cultic prostitution. That's a biggie, verses 17 and 18. Huge um, feature of pagan worship not to be done in Israel. Reminding Israel about not charging interest to one another. That's verses 19 and 20. Remember, they had the blessings to loan, but not with interest. They had the blessings to redeem the land that was sold. They had the blessings even to redeem their brothers or to even take their brothers in, in, in slave service in order to repay those, those debts. Moses reminds Israel about the seriousness of vows in verses 21 through 23. 
The God of truth will hold you to it. He will require it of you. Whatever you vow, you must pay. Don't delay. You're better off not vowing at all. Just refrain from vowing. It's not a sin of omission if you refrain from vowing. Just never vow. And uh, you can never break your vow. More issues on neighborliness and hospitality. (laughs) It's one thing to pluck grain and have a snack but you're not going in there with your sickle. You're not harvesting your neighbor's field. Difference between snacking and harvesting. And for the Pharisees that were attacking Jesus' disciples, because all they were doing was snacking, all they were doing was eating a meal as they passed through the the field. It's not like that they were harvesting the crop with their sickles and and, uh, stealing from uh, that particular field. That's not what was happening. All right, chapter 24. i got five minutes to teach the doctrine of divorce. (laughs) Now that's easy enough. Moses provides information concerning divorce and remarriage. Jesus taught on this in Matthew 5, Matthew 19, Mark 10, Luke 16. Also Paul cites this when he teaches. uh, The Apostle Paul takes uh, the original in Deuteronomy, he takes Jesus' commentary, and then he expands that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So if a man takes a wife and marries her, it happens she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. The rabbis argued back and forth. What do you mean by indecency? Right? Like, who's my neighbor? What, what do you consider indecent? He writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends, it, uh, sends her out from his house. Now keep in mind, any husband can do this. Unless they have the lifelong marriage because of premarital sex. Or the other conditions whereby they have the, uh, the he, he violated her, that's marriage without divorce. Okay? Unless you're in a marriage without divorce option because of a previous judicial function in your clan, then any, any man would be eligible to do this. And then she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. Notice, there's no ban on remarriage. A divorced person can remarry. She becomes another man's wife. If the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends it out of, her, out of his house. So now she's two times divorced. Or if the second husband actually dies. Either way, doesn't matter. Whether it's a, the double divorce or a divorce and a death. Either way, she finds herself single again because husband number two is gone then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife. The only ban ever, anywhere in the Bible, the only ban ever for remarriage of a divorced person is remarriage of a former spouse if there has been an intermediate spouse. Does that make sense? The former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since... She has been defiled. Now, if she had never remarried, if she had stayed single after the divorce, he would have been free to, to take her back. There would not have been a, another defilement. And he would have been perfectly free to take her back. And the Bible encourages that. Jesus encourages that. Jesus says, stay unmarried or else be reconciled to your husband. Because as soon as you remarry somebody else, a third party then, you will never be remarried to that original husband. That is what is, that's the remarriage that's banned in the scripture. Because she's been defiled. That's an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. It's basically just serial adultery, passing wives around and taking turns, and, and, and you can't sanctify that just by having you know, a marriage license in, in between or having some kind of a, a legal sanction for your... Um, for your uh, for your sin, like in Muslim countries today, they can issue a little certificate of marriage that's good for good for thirty minutes, and uh, and and that way they can claim it's not prostitution. You were legally married in that thirty minute or that one hour. You know, not only do they have hotel rooms by the hour, but they give you a a wedding license to go with it for the hour. You know, and then you're done, and you're done. And in Muslim law, that's not prostitution because you were married. Anyway, newlyweds in military service, of course. The newlywed gets a year without uh, going to war. Uh, He's ordered to give her happiness to his wife whom he has taken. I like that. 
Moses provides information concerning improper pledges. I'm just running out of time. Kidnapping is added to the capital offenses. Kidnapping is punishable by death. That's verse 7. Again, purging the evil from among you. The seriousness of leprosy. Fair labor standards in verses 14 and 15. He worked for you for a day. Pay him at the end of the day. Don't let the sun go down on your uh, signing the paycheck. Pay him in cash. Cash in hand before the sun goes down. Give him his wages on this day before the sun sets, for he is poor and set his heart on it, so he will not cry against you to the Lord and becomes a sin in you. And if you took his coat as a pledge, give him that coat before again, before he has to sleep without a coat tonight. All right, well, didn't quite make it, but there we have it. We'll pick up here next hour, Lord willing, rapture pending. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time. Father, there's some tough, uh, tough sections here, and we, we dealt with them. We thank you for them. Thank you for the grace you pour forth in every passage, Father. Uh, ugly things happen in this world, but your grace is sufficient. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.